In Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, it says, In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Today we learn that Daniel has been counting sheep for a little too long. This is day 15. Welcome to the Journey Through Daniel podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's Word. Together we'll discuss the content and meaning of each passage and how the book of Daniel can help us understand more about who God is and the story He's writing for each of us every day. Welcome back to day 15 of the Journey Through Daniel podcast. I'm here once again with Brendan Lang and Ken Norton. Let's go. And I have a question for you today because we're going to be diving into some dreams. Have you ever woken up from a dream like way before you wanted to? Just wanted to go back into that dream. Do you guys remember your dreams? That's the thing. I don't remember any dreams like that, but I do know that I've had dreams like that where it's like, oh, this sucks. You don't remember your dreams? The only dreams I honestly can remember and think of is the ones when I'm falling. You fall That's in your dreams? Great. Like yeah, you fall, like fall to your death, <laughs> kind of? You wake up. It's like Inception. You so know, you're that, like... That movie Inception. I've always yeah. heard about that, sure. but I've never... So you're like so, ready to wake up every time if that's all you remember. Most of the time, they're more like falling or something wild is going on, like scary. And, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. those are the ones I remember because I wake up and then, you know, I do a little lap around the bedroom and then I'm afraid someone's underneath the bed. So you jump on, you know, have you ever done that? I feel like some people out there definitely can relate to me at that. I mean, I can remember dreams like that. I also have yeah. good dreams that I don't want to wake up what's, from. What's one of your favorite dreams? It's kind of funny because it's a real place. Brendan, do you remember when we went to Greece and we had that day that was really, really frustrating because mm-hmm. we were trying to get permits to film and all that stuff. And it was one of the more stressful situations that we've encountered. So we made the call that we need to take like a half day off just to like, one, get accustomed to jet lag, but also just to like de-stress a little bit. So we went to a beach and we found it. And there was no one there. We like hiked down. Brendan almost fell down a cliff hiking down to this beach. Wait, he almost fell down a cliff? Yeah, it's a long story. People always throw me in stories remember details that I don't remember. <laughs> I have this written down because at the end of every day, I was like, this is too unbelievable. I need to take notes. So he almost fell off a cliff. We were climbing down to this beach. And that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. No, not <laughs> at all. He was probably just walking nonchalantly and then no, he was, one step. The was problem, like, oh my gosh, the problem is he was too gung-ho about going down to the... He's like, oh, the oh, beach. And like, I was going clearing in. the way for you guys. <laughs> yeah, he oh, was. You know, I was cleared going out some first. trees, that's for sure. Was he running real fast oh, like, yeah. down the hill? Oh, yeah. And they like grabbed onto a tree and that went with him. Anyways, the beach is amazing down here and we took little naps took a little break on the beach the water was great and went swimming and i regularly dream that i'm back on that beach and then i wake up and i'm like it's cold why am i not on the beach I mean, I know I've had this experience, but I don't remember the dreams. I hardly ever remember my dreams. I know I had one a couple nights ago, but I don't remember what it was. I remember them every single time. Like, Seriously? I, use, I dream moles every night. Yeah. Rachel remembers dreams, and usually they're like thriller. That's what she dreams. Rachel has a dream about me. I got smushed. She dreamt of a Trionosaurus Rex that had like tank wheels, and we were all running away, and she said, I got run over by the tank wheels. <laughs> you did? Yes. <laughs> Ask her about it. It's insane. That's amazing. They're... She used to come into the student team meetings and be like, hey, like I had this wild dream and i was like "Uh oh we have all died in rachel's dreams (laughs) for sure (laughs) oh gosh well daniel's dreams he says he's quite unrested from and he has to take a few days off from work even after these dreams but to jump into that why don't you take us through our commentary for day 15 brendan day 15 at god's appointed time 
Daniel 8 contains another vision of beasts and horns, which represent kings and kingdoms. Unlike previous visions, this vision gives some specific interpretations for these images. The first image Daniel sees is a two-horned ram, a representation of the kings of Media and Persia. Then, Daniel sees a shaggy goat with a prominent horn, a representation of the first king of Greece, Alexander the Great. The final image Daniel sees is a small horn emerging from the goat. This horn is not explicitly identified, but most scholars agree that it represents Antiochus Epiphanes IV, a later Greek Syrian tyrant. Scholars draw this conclusion because the proud exploits attributed to this horn are known to be true of Antiochus. For example, verse 11 says that the small horn took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord. This is a reference to Antiochus's decision in 167 BC to ban the worship of Yahweh and murder anyone who defied his order. Also in verse 11, it says that the horn claimed divine status when it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. Antiochus famously claimed to be God when he accepted the title Epiphanes, a title meaning God manifest. The visions of Daniel 9 and 11 will also point to the corrupt deeds of Antiochus, an indication of just how barbaric he was. Even though this vision of Antiochus was so disturbing that Daniel was appalled, the message of the vision was still one of hope. Hard times would continue to fall on the people of God, but like all the arrogant kings Daniel had encountered, this oppressor would meet his end at God's appointed time. This is the message we should take away from the vision. Sometimes it's not clear what God is doing or if he even cares. In reality, he sees the plight of those who are hurt by callous authorities. God's request is simply that we stay faithful in the waiting and trust that he will make things right at the appointed time. For day 15, we're reading Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision, after the one who had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep, with my face to the ground. 
Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of the reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the visions. It was beyond understanding. Ken, do you want to take us through our discussion questions for day 15? Question 1. The vision of Daniel 8 contains a number of parallels to previous stories and visions. What parallels do you notice between the actions of kings in this vision and the actions of kings in previous stories? What do you suppose the book is trying to teach us through these patterns? Question 2. Daniel 8.27 says that Daniel got up and went about the king's business, despite being exhausted and appalled by his vision. What do you suppose gave him the resolve to continue working for a king who is not fundamentally different than the horn he saw in the vision? How does Daniel's example speak to you? And there's a lot of horns happening in this story. It's really funny how much attention they give. What's up with the horns? Why are they talking about horns so much? Horns are in the world of Israel. It's a symbol of power. A lot of times horns represent kings. It's a book we've been talking about power, hand of power, talking about abuse of power. And so horns naturally in these symbolic visions represent kings and those who have authority, power. So when people lose their horn or the horns are broken, their power is broken? Well, their power is broken because they've been broken, okay. right? I think what's interesting about this vision, we alluded to this in the commentary, but it's symbolic, but it's also explicated in ways that other visions aren't. So What's that word mean? I mean, Ex it's made clear. I don't know. <laughs> we have a dictionary other. over here? It's interpreted at a deeper level. There's more interpretation that happens here. So like in Daniel 2 and 7, we get these symbolic visions of beasts and statues. What we can walk away knowing is that the elements of the statue, the different beasts, they represent empires. There's one specific interpretation made with the statue. If you remember the head of gold, Daniel says, yeah. you are that head of gold to Nebuchadnezzar. So there's a specific connection made there, but for the most part, the visions were supposed to fill in the gaps, or maybe we're supposed to fill in the gaps. Is that's, there something with the animals that's different in that? Or is there like a significance between the ram and a goat? Or is the, that just two random animals? Well, there's probably significance to it. I mean, they're different than the animals we see in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, it's hybrid animals. They're animals 
animals that really don't exist except for in mythology, right? My <laughs> dreams. <laughs> in your dreams, yeah, possibly. So these are animals they're familiar with. If you don't grow up on a farm, if you're not familiar with goats, you know, they're... Ooh, enlighten us. They're fun. You go to the zoo and you like feed them and stuff. Yeah, goats, but they'll eat anything. They'll little, also... Don't they have little horns though? They have little horns. They can be vicious though. Well, mm. it is interesting that they mentioned, hey, Gabriel, why don't oh, yeah. you interpret this for... Like, tell him what this means. And, you know, he starts mm-hmm. with it and says, the vision is about the time of the end. Yeah. Who's Gabriel? What's this guy doing? And then the time of the end. When is the time of the end? You don't know Gabriel? I don't want to assume. Roasted. Gabriel is a messenger of God. We haven't really talked about this. One of the features of apocalyptic visions is oftentimes in apocalyptic literature, the material that is received needs to be interpreted by a supernatural, someone who can help make sense of this vision. And so that's essentially what happens. We have this messenger angel, this supernatural being. This is the first time he's identified actually in scripture. Not mentioned too many times, really. Wait, what other times he mentioned? He's, mes- he's mentioned in the it. book of Luke. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. What's he doing there? Well, he's showing up and being a messenger again. He's doing the same okay. sorts of things, right? Cool. His name means man of God, which I think is kind of interesting, like warrior man of God. He's a supernatural being. He's part of the host of heaven. We talked about Daniel 7, how Daniel, he saw this vision of a divine council, a heavenly courtroom with all sorts of beings. Gabriel's one of those beings. Everybody in that courtroom has a function. You have different angels who have different functions, different roles within the council of God. And the function of Gabriel is to be a messenger. At least that's what we gather from the times that we see him involved in scripture. The other question, which is probably the more important, what was that? What is the time of the end? Oh, the time of the end. The thing I would say about end, when you see this word, the end, or things like it, the day of the Lord and the prophets, they're ends to eras, you might say. And your brother actually alluded to this the other day. The New Testament writers talk about this whole time period from Jesus on as the end, the latter days. We are living in the end times, according to New Testament writers. But the end, at least as I see it here, it's an end of an era. It's the end of whatever thing was going on. It's coming to an end. It's coming to a conclusion. So in verse 19 says, he said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. So then you just walk through, okay? We talked about how we know what these symbols represent. The symbol of the ram with the two horns represents the kingdoms of Media and Persia. The goat that has the prominent horn that becomes four horns. We really don't need the interpreter to tell us this because we know this from the bare facts of history, but the interpreter tells us this is the king of Greece, which, of course, Alexander the Great. And if you know world history, Alexander the Great died at a very young age, and his kingdom was split up into four empires uh, among four generals. And those four horns, of course, represent the four generals, the new horns of power that sort of rise up. And then there's this discussion of a little horn. And this is where we get a connection between Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. Some people question whether we should identify these horns as being one and the same. I tend to think that the little horn here is similar to the little horn as we see in Daniel 7. And this little horn horn, the things that are described about this horn, he's not explicitly identified. We know he's a king of Greece because he comes from the goat. We don't know exactly who he is, but when you walk through world history again, it becomes very clear that a lot of the deeds of this individual sound like Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, who was a king of Greece. And he is the one we've been talking about. Yeah. And there's lots of history and baggage that go with that guy. Yep. 
So just to recap, Brendan, you talked about apocalyptic literature. What is that? If I go on the dictionary definition of apocalypse, it literally says the complete final destruction of the world as described in the biblical book of Revelation. Yeah. What? You know, and so it's like, should I be reading into that? Is that truth? Man, or... I haven't heard that in so long. You type in Google, that's what comes up. And that's how it's used. So that's the definition. Words have their meaning based on how we use them, right? And so... Well, is that... Okay, maybe I should ask it a different way. Is that the same definition that maybe the biblical authors would have been using? Or is it different? Because I've heard it described sometimes differently that this term apocalypse was not really the same definition as we put it. We think end of the world, we think everything's blowing up, it ceased to exist. Let me put it this way. So we've talked about this idea that an apocalypse is an unveiling. It's a revelation. I mean, think about the word revelation. You know what that word means? It means it's something that is revealed. And like, just to name it, there's not revelations either. Yes, there's it's only not one, the book there, of revelations. There's only one revelation in the book of Revelation. So, yeah. so it's an unveiling. It's a revelation. It's the opening of eyes. And this is why you need a supernatural being. That's what you see in the book of Revelation. There's a supernatural being that walks John through this vision that he has. So an apocalypse is cut and dry. It's a revelation of an alternative perspective of reality. And oftentimes it's sort of the supernatural spiritual, what's going on behind the scenes. This is why in Daniel 7, we see the courtroom of God. It's happening in our midst, I would argue, but it doesn't mean we can see it. It's just another look at what's going on behind the scenes. That's good. Because that's different. It totally is. The definition I've gotten where like this idea to reveal, like I think about the pandemic, like there's been so many things revealed about our culture in that word. We would say like we're experiencing an apocalypse because something's been revealed. Great examples like the racial, our world today. Like there's something being revealed that's an apocalypse, but it's not necessarily just this idea of like death, destruction. It doesn't have to include death and it doesn't have to include ends. Now, the reason why you get this is because you read passages like this. You read the book of Revelation. Okay. There's a lot of death and destruction. Daniel 7, there's beasts that are getting taken down, right? The word end is used here many times, but when you dive into it and you look closely, well, that doesn't mean that it's the end times necessarily. It's the appointed time of this end, the appointed time of the end of this era. And oftentimes what we need to see is that there's a supernatural battle being fought behind the world that we see. One of the things we'll continue to discover in the book of Daniel is that there's actually a connection between what's going on on the earthly plane and what's going on in the spiritual plane. The battles that are being fought on the ground here, there are battles like that being fought in the spiritual realm. We just don't exactly see that. And so again, there's death, there's decay because it's trying to show the real meaning of what's happening on earth as it's being mirrored, you might say. So is that how we should be reading this? Is that like a new lens to see where it's like, this can be really difficult for anybody to read. But if I'm reading with the lens of like, what is really being revealed here? What's the apocalypse? What's that thing? Yeah. Is that helpful as I jump through this? I was talking to a mentor of mine last night about how the Bible is structured in different types of literature. And he doesn't even put apocalyptic literature as one of the types of literature. He lumps Daniel and Revelation as political cartoons is the best way to think about it. Because what you're trying to do with this type of literature is they're trying to basically have a commentary. Like it is a political cartoon. This whole book of Daniel up till now is about power and its misuse, even if it's given by God. Power and what it does to the people of God and its interaction with it. Same with Revelation, right? It's almost like a political cartoon. There's a lot of debate about when Revelation was written and what it's talking about, but as I read it, and I 
think about some of the things we see in there. It's at least in places, it seems to me, confronting Nero or Roman emperors, at least, right? Yeah. Again, depends when you think John wrote this vision, whether it's in the 60s or 90s or whatever, but it's confronting Roman emperors and the way they abuse their power, but talking about it in coded sort of symbolic ways. I think the problem that you run into, and this is, again, my mentor was talking like this. He used this example. It's like a Monet painting. If you've seen Monet's lilies, they're really famous. He uses a method called pointillism. And basically what he's doing is really small brush strokes, really tiny ones. And what people like to do for apocalyptic literature is they like to go really, really close and be like, ooh, what does this verse mean? Oh, what is this beast? Maybe this beast is the pandemic. Maybe this beast is this thing over here. But if you're that close up on a work of art, like, yeah, the brush strokes are interesting. The method is interesting. There's detail to be gained from that. But you don't see the whole picture until you take a step back and look at it as a whole, right? What is trying to be said with this work? What is the picture you're trying to see? I just think of scripture, and this is just how I read scripture in general. Like, I think there's a zooming in that sometimes you have to do. Because sometimes you can look at something broadly and you don't really know what you're looking at. So you, you zoom in and I compare this to like Netflix when you turn it on and it hasn't totally buffered and it's like this low. It's very fuzzy. Yeah, very fuzzy. Sometimes it's like you need to allow that detail to rise to the surface, which requires diving in. But if you're just looking at the leaves, then you're missing the entire forest and you don't know how the leaves, what they're contributing to the entire scene that you're supposed to be seeing. What your mentor is getting at is this idea that if you're just focusing on this, you may just be focusing on the wrong thing entirely, but you also may not be attuned to how it fits with the rest. Right. If you're not reading it in the context of the rest, then you're missing a masterpiece. And this is why we do Journey the way we do it. Yeah, we dive in, we'll talk about some details on individual days, but we're trying to read this as a whole from book to book because what we want to discover is that there are themes, there's this painting that the entire book is making that if we just talk about Daniel and the lions, then we're going to miss the whole thing. I love what you said about, you know, we need to zoom in sometimes, but we can't lose sight of the big picture. And that's the tensions that we are always going to be weighing. But we definitely don't want to weight it to one side, which is when people view Daniel as like, oh, this is a prescriptive view of what the apocalypse end times is going to be. And that's the more traditional view of what an apocalypse is. It's a tribulation almost. But really what we're talking about is that we're trying to make a statement about power. And we're trying to open people's eyes to what's really going on behind the scenes and the way that God views the world. And that's the beautiful thing about that metaphor is like you get an appreciation for the masterpiece when you do go zoomed in and you get all the way close and you're like, wow, he did this with just tiny brushstrokes, right? The Daniel in the lion's den is a perfect story in the face of power. And when you zoom out and look at Daniel's life and mm -hmm. all that he goes through during this time, you realize what a masterpiece and what a statement this whole thing really is. And again, like we've been talking about Daniel 7, Daniel 8, it's Daniel in visions of beasts. What does he experience in Daniel 6? It's a story of Daniel and beasts. And so you miss those connections if you're not reading Daniel 7 and 8. If you're just reading Daniel 6, you're missing part of a bigger story that the entire book is trying to tell. And so like you walk through Daniel 8, let me just back up and talk about what we see in this whole yeah. chapter. Something that sticks out to me as I read it. We didn't really address it in the commentary. We haven't talked about it so far. But one theme that I see on multiple occasions in this chapter, we get statements about who's able to rescue from mm -hmm. the power of beasts and horns. So it 
says in verse four, I watched the rams that charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue. None who could deliver. It's a word that means to save in the Old Testament. None could rescue from its power. Then jump down. There's a new beast that rises that tramples the ram. It says the ram was powerless to stand against the goat knocked at the ground and trampled on it and none could rescue the ram from its power. There are these beasts that rise and none on earth can stop these beasts from overpowering their victims. And then you go down, we read about this little horn. It says, he will become very strong, but not by his own power. And then in verse 25, he will cause deceit to prosper. He'll consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take a stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. And so we see this vision of empires that no one on earth can stop these. We're ineffective as individuals sometimes to stop the beasts of this yeah. world. But there is someone who does have power over the beast. And that's what we've been learning throughout the whole book of Daniel. It doesn't tell us explicitly who it is, but it should be clear to us by now when it says he will be destroyed, but not by human power. It tells us that God will take a stand against kings like this, that when we become victims to people who abuse their authority, we in our suffering wonder what's going on, wonder if there's a way we can stop this. And the truth is we can have hope and we can trust that God is going to rise up. And at his appointed time, at his appointed end, he's going to intervene and bring an end to this reign of power. I think it's interesting, Daniel's response to this dream too, you get to the end. I mean, I think we all have seasons like this, right? Where we're just like totally tanked and completely exhausted and yep. not to miss what Daniel's response to this is, because you actually had a reflection question about it. The first thing that he does is he just rests. Because what a stressful and difficult <laughs> dream is like, yeah. hey, um, Daniel, here's uh, the future of humanity. Mm -hmm. Just going to lay that on you. You just carry that burden by yourself, right? Well, yeah, you think about it from Daniel's perspective, right? I mean, we talk about this as being a message of hope for people living in the second century, that there will be 2,300 mornings and evenings, three and a half years or seven years, depending on how you interpret that, where this Antiochus Epiphanes is going to have a reign of power, where he's going to oppress the people of God. And that's exactly what we know to be true of history, there's a message of hope that that's going to come to an end, and it does come to an end in 164 BC. But for Daniel, from his vantage point, okay, I'm working for the Babylonians right now. The context for this is the third year of Belshazzar. It's not even the Persian Empire yet. This is still before that chronologically. What he sees is that it's not just going to be the Babylonians who are going to oppress the people of God. It's not going to be just the Persians. It's actually going to be the kingdom of Greece and future kings in Greece that are continuing. It's going to well, keep coming. Exactly. Keep coming. Yep. From that vantage point, this is terrible. It's yeah. exhausting. I mean, especially for him, he's like, listen, I was pulled from that land, right? What's his origin story? Mm -hmm. And now he's like, oh, by the way, I got this dream. It's never ending. It's mm -hmm. just going to keep happening, right? It's got to be the most exhausting thing. But watching Daniel's reaction to this is super interesting to me because what he does is he sits with it and he rests and then he picks up and he keeps going. And that's like so viscerally applicable to at least where I'm at right now, just like tired. We get through these journey studies and usually that by the end of it, it's pretty exhausting. But it's also the chance, I think, to remember like what's being revealed is that God is behind the curtain. Yeah. And like, even if we experience empires or oppression or whatever that may seem overwhelming, that the revelation being revealed is that God is still behind it and that he's going to be the one in power. That's something that I think we have to meditate on and really allow to see deep into our souls because when you're being overwhelmed, it is exhausting and it's okay to be exhausted, but to have mm -hmm. that truth and that hope, that's the thing that we can all carry with us that will hopefully get us to keep waking up and to keep going, to keep pushing forward of like, yeah. all right, we need to share this message with others because our world is 
is experiencing microcosms of this as human beings, Mm -hmm. whether it's in this country or other countries, and how we as Christians live out our faith and stand firm in that will ultimately hopefully provide hope and the revelation that God will be victorious. He could have given up. He could have just quit on life. And he said, I'm just going to keep going. I recognize that this is going to be tough for me. It's going to be tough for later people. Well, and like he's still serving one of those kings that's just like the dreams, right? And we know he goes on to serve more kings. He gets called up out of retirement. You think about what happens to Belshazzar in Daniel 5. That's the king when this vision occurs. And that's a king who in his arrogance, in his pride, he takes the things of God. He shows disdain for God and he's cut down. He's brought to an end. And so he's serving under that kind of king. And that's basically the vision we get here in Daniel 8 as well, that there will be future kings, and especially this one who's going to show disdain for the things of God, who's actually going to call himself God. And still in the midst of that arrogance, Daniel, he pulls up his bootstraps, right? And says, well, I'm going to take my rest. I'm going to lay exhausted. And then I'm going to keep going because this is all I have. Well, and he knows that like, you know, what he's been entrusted is the only thing that he can do, right? He has his circle of influence and he trusts that God will ultimately reign supreme when it comes to power over this earth. Brennan, is there a reason why he couldn't interpret this dream? Is there something to that where he's like the interpreter of all these dreams and now something has kind of shifted where, I mean, thank goodness. I mean, I would have quit if you didn't get the interpretation. I mean, thank gosh, Gabriel. I mean, cheat sheet here, but is there something to that where now it's starting to shift where he can't interpret these visions, these dreams? I mean, is there a difference maybe between vision and dream? There is a difference between visions and dreams, but they're very similar. In fact, the words in Hebrew, they're a similar sound, kind of a wordplay. But this is a question I've thought as well. Like, why is it that in the first half of the book, he's the one who's able to interpret the dreams. Now in this new part of the book, he needs help interpreting them. And I'm sure there's been good work done on this. And I need to honestly just do a little bit more reading and research to see what people have to say about this. The best way I can answer that question right now is that in the dreams that he interprets for Nebuchadnezzar, he's that Gabriel type of figure that God reveals to him what he's supposed to say. So even though he's not in the divine council as a spiritual being, he sort of is still someone who has this connection with the courtroom of God. He prays to God and God reveals something to him and he becomes a spokesman. He doesn't know those meanings of those dreams by his own. He says that explicitly. He says, I am able to give this to you because the God who reveals mysteries gave it to me. And so now the God who reveals mysteries, he's giving the dreams, but he's not giving the meaning of the dreams to him, the meaning of the visions to him. He's giving them to this other figure, Gabriel. And I'm going to say that Gabriel probably doesn't even need to be told these things by God because he has that same vantage point. He's not divine but he sees the world from a different perspective than we do. And so Gabriel assumes that role of spokesman. So if we're to like zoom out from this dream, this is one of the brushstrokes, I guess, in this metaphor that we've talked about earlier. What should we be taking from this? If we're going to zoom out and start to look at this masterpiece, what's being said? We're three out of the four weeks. We're done with this reading. What's the masterpiece that's being painted here in the book of Daniel? I would say it depends where you are located historically. Because I think this was specifically a message for people living in that period of 167 to 164 BC, approximately 2300 evenings and mornings, where an oppressive king, a tyrant king, decided to wield his power in ways that were not of God. He decided to storm into the land of Israel, act as though he is God, end times of sacrifice, and all sorts of Jewish customs, and try to promote this policy of Hellenization to essentially make the Jews into Greeks. So I think if you're reading it, at least originally, this is a message for people like that who are suffering under oppressive regimes. I think if we're reading it in our context today, we have to, as we've been talking about this whole time, 
think about, okay, are there people who exert their authority like this in our world? Do we exert our authority like this? And if that's the case, then the promise is that we might still have to suffer through it, or we might be the ones who are going to cause people to suffer much longer. But yeah. God has an appointed end. God will intervene. God isn't blind to what's going on in the world. I don't know why God doesn't always intervene immediately, but he does eventually. And that's the hope. That's the promise that God is going to step in. There will be an appointed end. Those who, in their arrogance, trample on people, God sees that, and he's going to, in his justice, bring those people down. I think, too, if you zoom out even further, if the masterpiece is not just the book of Daniel, but if it's the whole Bible, the masterpiece being painted is the difference between the kings of Daniel's life and the kings that would come after Daniel and oppress the people that Daniel represents, and Jesus, the king sent by God to subvert all of this power. You get a completely different look when it comes to a king. You know, it says he's the king of kings, but it's a new type of king of kings, right? It's not about physical force and power, he subverts the established power systems in Mm -hmm. the world. It's interesting to me that that's the way that God sort of ultimately overcomes power abuse is through an act of love, through a person of love, through a kingdom that looks different. And that's why the Gospels pick up on the Son of Man language, this kingdom language, because it's trying to show that here's how the world operates, here's how the kingdom of God operates, here's how this supernatural, this heaven and earth thing that God has created, how he wants it to operate. And so the ultimate way you actually bring down power is not by power. I mean, at least as it's traditionally expressed, you bring down power through powerful acts of love and service and suffering and sacrifice. And that's what we get in the story of Jesus. Well, we're three quarters of the way done and we have plenty of dreams left. So I guess we'll see you next week. See you there. See you on Monday. Thanks for joining us today for the Journey Through Daniel podcast. If this is your first time, so glad that you checked us out. To check out even more resources, children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org. And follow us for updates at Willow Creek NS on Instagram. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check us out at willowcreek.org. We'll see you next time.